1: Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org.
2: Well, hello and welcome along to the show and how are you? Very exciting today. I have not won. Not three, not four, but two special guests joining me today for a bit of a tribute to one of the loveliest Warner stars of the Golden Age, Anne Dvorak. Yes, later on I'm joined by Christina Rice, the author of Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel, the definitive account of Anne Dvorak's life, and a lady who spent 15 years investigating her. First up, though, an absolute treat for you. We all like a song or two, right? Nothing slides you into that mood for romance and love like a well-chosen tune from the golden age. My dear friend Rob Bowman is the musical director of Chicago on Broadway. He's also the man who toured with the legendary Elaine Stritch, providing the tunes while she belted out the classics for adoring crowds everywhere. He's a golden age of Hollywood devotee, a bottomless well of musical knowledge and a true gentleman. And to my delight, Rob has accepted an invitation to become this show's musical director for a while. Rob's popping in for the next few shows to introduce us all to some incredible music beginning with today. So, Rob, over to you. What have you got for us? Something familiar,
3: perhaps? So, at the beginning of every Attaboy Clarence podcast, we hear Adam's opening theme music called Thou Swell. I'm sure most of you know it has lyrics, there's probably a few that maybe don't know and I'm positive one or two that really don't care to know. However, (laughs) it is a song that was written for a 1927 musical called A Connecticut Yankee, Words and Music by none other than Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart. In 1948, MGM did a very splashy Technicolor movie about Rogers and Hart called Words and Music, and they reprised this number in the film, sung by America's Girl Next Door, June Allison. It's a really fun arrangement, a really spiffy dance break at the end. And it's a fun number, as you can hear in the lyrics. It's a, it's, you know, because it goes back into the King Arthur time from modern time. So it's a mix of sort of the old English way of talking mixed with modern slang. Thou swell. Ladies and gentlemen from 1948 thou swell
4: thy words a queer sir unto mine ear sir yet art a dear sir to me thou couldst woo me now couldst thou try night i murmur swell too and like it well too more thou wilt tell too sandy thou art dandy now art thou my knight Well, thou witty, thou sweet, thou grand Wouldst kiss me pretty Wouldst hold my hand Both thine eyes are cute too What they do to me Hear me holler I choose a sweet loller For her in thee I kiss or it's a hut for two, two rooms and kitchen, I'm sure would do give me just a plot of not a lot of land and the swell, thou willy, thou grand. Swear, thou witty, thou sweet, thou pretty, thou terrific, thou sensational, thou grand
2: In with a bang, that's the full version. Thou Swell by June Allison, and huge thanks to your friend and mine, Mr. Rob Bowman, who will be shepherding us through some very fine music, not just today, but over the coming episodes. Delighted, honoured to have him on board, so welcome to the show, Rob. Just a quick bulletin for the Town Hall Notice Board here, all through December, Film Club is going festive. I'm determined to make the most of the Yuletide run-up, and so each Sunday night throughout the month of December, I'll be presenting a golden age Christmas classic to keep you in that holiday mood. Join us at Film Club each Sunday at 1900 GMT. I'm not going to tell you what the movies are going to be, but I guarantee they'll fill you with cheer. That's every Sunday throughout December at 1900 GMT. And if you haven't joined yet, easy to sign up over at patreon.com slash attaboysecret. Also have to tell you that the latest movie commentary track is available now for patrons. Came out last week, just finished recording and producing a commentary track for one of my favourite movies of all time, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. So if you want to watch along with me, now you can. Head over to patreon.com slash and look for the movie commentary reward tier. Okay, we are got to go and head on over and test your powers of deduction. Not one, but two Hollywood legends for you to identify this week and a special guest guesser. Is along for the ride. David Niven joins the panel, so you are playing along with him as you do your best to try and spot which stars are masking their voices as we play. Who the hell are those Hollywood legends? All right.
5: Panel, as you know, in the case of our mystery challenger, you change the form of questioning. You ask one question at a time in turn, moving clockwise, and let's begin with Bennett Cerf.
1: Have you made uh, another television appearance within the past week?
5: That's one down and ninety- Miss Kilgallen.
1: Uh,
6: are you a stage actress? Yes. Is that a yes or a no?
5: Yes, that's, yes. This, of course, encompasses the full spread of the talent of our guest. Oh. Mr. Niven. Are you currently appearing on Broadway? No. Two down and to go Miss Francis. <laughs>
6: Are you appearing in television? Other than here? Yes.
1: Mr. Sir? A gang, is there more than one person sitting as mystery guest? Yes. Miss <laughs> Kilgallen?
6: Do you work as an act? No.
1: That three dot
5: and seven to go, Mr. Niven? Are you starting a new show in the near future?
6: No. When you say you don't work uh, in the...
5: Oh. Hold the phone for a minute. I have to talk to my doctor. <laughs> Okay, are okay. you starting a new show in the near future? We'll give you a no, but there'll be a question mark behind it, Miss Francis. Huh? Think
6: trying uh, to... It means they're going
1: to resume. Oh, they're
6: going to resume a show. Does that mean that you are going to resume a show you have been doing? Yes! Oh,
1: goody. Does this show include the name of either of you in the, in the title of the show?
6: No.
5: Five down and five to go, Miss Kilgallen.
6: Is either of you a comedian? Oh.
5: Six times four to go, Mr. Niven. What was that? No. no. No.
1: I can do it. Are you starting your renewed show in the next
6: month? Yeah. Oh. Did you hear that? Yes. Yeah. That are you, uh are you both in a series on television together?
1: Yes. Mr. Serif? Is it a series that uh, is seen, I hope, on the CBS network? Mm Mm-hmm. Miss
7: Kilgallen?
6: Does it have a plot? (laughs) 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 I certainly hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Mr.
5: Niven? Have you at any time had anything to do with a manhole? With a what?
6: Did you mean something
5: by that, David? Yes, oh, yes. Oh, well, what time? No. That makes it seven <laughs> out of three to go, Miss
8: Francis.
6: Are you a domestic series as opposed to a Western series? Mm-hmm. And if you are, bravo, whoever you are.
8: <laughs> Mr.
1: Sir? Is there any office work or business connection shown in this series?
5: Uh, I'm not quite sure what you're
1: getting at, Bennett. Can you well, uh, on? the, uh, one of the characters sometimes is a scene laid in a business office. Yes?
6: Yeah.
5: Miss Kilgallen?
6: I would like to cast to Mr. Niven. H- uh,
5: has the show been on for more than two years previous, previous to this moment? Yeah. This
6: oh, room? that voice. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a girl that I know.
9: I more think. than two years previous to this
6: moment. Uh, have you both been in pictures?
1: Yeah. Yes. Mr. Sir. Mr. Is, Is one of you Anne Southern?
7: No,
5: it's not a go, Miss Kilgallen.
6: I'd still like to pass. I haven't a clue.
5: Springton.
6: Uh could we just hear the girl's voice yes. once more?
2: Just say it's a nice day.
10: It's a nice day.
2: We'll halt proceedings right there. Thank you very much. Any inklings? This is a toughie, I have to say. You'll really have to know your stuff to get one of them. But you'll need almost supernatural levels of deduction to get them both, I reckon. We'll see you later on when I reveal the answer.
11: She's just a girl and she's on fire.
2: Now, one of the most criminally overlooked actresses of the Golden Age is one that always catches the eye whenever she appears in a movie. And Dvorak was one of Warner Brothers' biggest stars during the 30s. And was actually drawing lines in the sand in court with the studio long before James Cagney, Betty Davis, or Olivia de Havilland. This girl is on fire. To see her on screen is to fall hopelessly at her feet, and yet she very rarely seems to pop up in people's top tens. Why is that? A few years ago, the first true biography of Anne Dvorak appeared, and it remains the definitive account of her life. Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel was written by author, librarian, and ace researcher Christina Rice, who spent 15 years investigating Anne's life and building her forgotten story piece by piece. Well, Christina joined me a few days ago to discuss Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel, the book and the star... Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show the fabulous Christina Rice, the author of the definitive work on one of Warner's most undersung heroes of the Golden Age, among other works. The book is *And Vorak, Hollywood's Forgotten Revel. Christina, it's such a delight to have you on the show today. Welcome along.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
2: I have to say, for anyone who uh, hasn't begun to follow you yet on social media, you really must hop onto Twitter and follow her at, at Christina Rice. If only to see the marvellous behind-the-scenes pictures of Christina's office. It is a golden haven of Hollywood in my age. I especially like the uh, top row of uh, pictures above your door, the, the five pictures. Have there been many cases where people have just been like gawping at her and walked into doors and walls and things?
0: Yeah, that actually I think has happened. And it does, you know, my my office is in, it's at the Central Library in downtown Los Angeles and it's in this giant workroom. And so when people come intern or volunteer it's like this this beacon where it's like, you know if you don't, if you get lost and don't know where you are just look for Anne and follow it. (laughs) So then you can find, um, but yeah they're, they're wonderful oversized posters that we had made for my book release party, which was seven years ago but we we had it at central library and Mm. you're working on the book it took me 15 years to write the book and it was such an odyssey. And, you know, for a number of those years, I was working at Central Library. And so many librarians there helped me with the research and helped dig things and, you know, were on this Odyssey with me. So um, it made sense to have the book release party at Central Library. And, and it was, it was fantastic. It was kind of like a, um, you know, Christina, this is your life moment. And people, you know, it was my colleagues at work, but then family and people I hadn't seen in 25 years, you know, came out for it. And it was, you know, packed and yeah, and of our memorability and lots of things so it's nice to have that um you know a, a, a memento of that more mm. actually many many oversized mementos of that moment hanging outside of of my office and it's a way you know because I, I collect on Anne I have I think close to like 2,000 photos of her and lobby cards and posters so it's a way for me to just t- display Anne but not have my my precious original materials at work with me. <laughs> That's
2: amazing so so I assume that you've created a few uh, and fans on the way and especially in your office.
0: I hope I think so. I hope I have. I, I like to think that there is a lot more awareness um, even if it's just in my own circle you know because of me and, and many many times over the last you know 25 years I've had people say oh they, they, TCM was showing one of her movies so I sat down and watched it because <laughs> of you. So um, yeah like I always say I, I spread the gospel of Anne one, one person at a time.
2: Amazing. I I see from the interior of your office as well, you're quite sort of an avid Funko Pop collector.
0: Oh, yeah. And my office is kind of the, the overflow of what doesn't fit in my house anymore because my husband okay. and my daughter and I are all you know insane collectors we, we all have that defective gene in our <laughs> DNA um so yeah our house is overflowing with Funko Pops and so that has spilled over into my office so um
2: I kind of wish they would make more classic Hollywood ones though I know they made a few universal horror ones a little while ago but I do think that you know the space for a Warner Gangster line
0: oh my god if there if there are yeah t- t- yeah scarface like 1932 <laughs> scarface pops like with george raft you know flipping a coin and dare oh i say the and the yeah. andvorak Andavor- pop that a small handful of us would would, would, just, <laughs> would be an absolute dream come true
2: <laughs> well um like right at the top we need to talk about uh her name um there is a quote that you know um she gave once said you know my name is actually pronounced vorshak and everyone pronounces it wrong but um but Dvorak seems to be the accepted the accepted way of saying it among the uh, the fans now.
0: Um, oh, that was the accepted way kind of over the course of her career. So it was a stage name. Her, her actual birth name was Anne McCam, or Anna McCam, And so she adopted the name Dvorak or Dvorak, however you want to pronounce it. Um, she, she claimed it was on her family tree on her mother's side. I was never able to confirm that. Um, I found a quote somewhere from her father saying he, he thought she, she took it from the composer. So early on she did want it to be pronounced um and I don't know that anybody ever did so the (laughs) the the very common pronunciation became Dvorak and even early on she seemed to not she seemed to waver on how she wanted to spell it so she started going Mm -hmm. by that name while she was at MGM as a chorus girl so when she, she first went to MGM she used her mother's name Anna Lair her mother had been a silent film actress so I don't know if she thought that would help give her some clout which her mom was pretty (laughs) washed up by then so and then i have um publicity photos from like around 31 where she's called ann Dvorak spelled d-e-v-o-r-a-k and i even have a newspaper clipping from 29 now that i think about it where it's spelled that way and then when she signs her contract her first contract with howard hughes she signs it d apostrophe v-o-r-a-k so yeah she she didn't even know how but anyway everybody (laughs) always called her Dvorak um and that did become the common pronunciation and what she went by and you know that quote um which is I think it's in a book of quotations about her saying her name was pronounced Borjak that ended up you know on the internet it's on the wikipedia page and so Mm. I find it interesting that um, people will pop up on Twitter like Crusade to have her name pronounced Dvorak, which, you know, perhaps I should as well, but I've just, you know, I've, mm-hmm. I've been a fan of hers for 25 years, I've always called her Dvorak. Robert Osborne pronounced it Dvorak. So that, that's just always, you know, what, what I've rolled with. I don't think anyway is incorrect since it wasn't her name anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, among, amongst family and friends, you know, she's just Anne or Andy. Yeah, if, if, we, if I refer to Anne, everybody knows who I'm talking about.
2: <laughs> um, I'm fairly sure you must get asked this all the time, but what what drew you to her to begin with? And, and you know, um, not just write about her, but investigate her over 15 years. I mean, that's quite an undertaking. Uh, there must have been some kind of, you know, real spark or love affair that, that, that began with you and her. How did it begin?
0: Yeah, um, yeah, it absolutely. I, I would say it is a love affair that, that is still going oh. on, even though the book came out <laughs> seven years ago. Um, I, I've, I've been a classic movie fan from the time I was as far back as i can remember from the time i was really really little i was just always drawn to the imagery of you know the studio system hollywood and so um when i was in college i really kind of amped up my viewing and i had you know membership cards at every video store and go to the library and check out movies and so at, at my local library at the time glendora which was the town i grew up in They had um, classic movies that you could check out. And there was the Forbidden Hollywood series on VHS. That was um, all the movies were introduced by Leonard Maltin. And I saw three on a match.
2: startling films
0: <laughs> startling yeah and, you know, and I'd never, you know i'd never heard of it and you know this is in the mid 90s and so this was i think when people were only starting to really become aware of and discover or rediscover pre-code films that they were you know finally being made available and you know i looked at the back of the box it sounded tawdry it sounded fun it was only you know an hour long and betty davis and humphrey bogart were in it and i knew them and so I watched it just expecting to, you know, kill an hour and avoid, you know, schoolwork. And there was this this movie, this like incredible <laughs> movie that just packs more into 63 minutes than I think mm. most movies today will put in two and a half hours. And there was Anne and I, I'd never heard of her. Uh, and to this day, I've never been so, just completely blown away by a performance. Like it was know,
2: it's just so brave, astounding.
0: Um, oh it's I just see. incredible yeah and it's just un, it was just unlike well you know and those early warner films are just so raw and
8: mm-hmm.
0: you know i'd grown up watching kind of the more glossy you know those are the ones you know we like casablanca and gone with the wind mm-hmm. like the ones that yeah, we more yeah. commonly saw like those are just these glossy perfect you know perfect looking films and three on a match is you know, to see an actress just looking like hell at the end um, wasn't something I was used to. And she's so good. And I watched it. And as soon as it ended, I was still living at home. My mom walked in and I said, mom, sit down. And I rewound it and I watched it again. So I just watched it back to back. Um, And at the time, you know, when i at that time in college, in my twenties was my, when I was just like binging classic film and it was you know, this really like period of self-education. And so anytime I got interested in a particular performer, I would go out and rent every movie I could find mm-hmm. and yeah. I would read every book I could find. But those tended to be people like like Betty Davis or Cary Grant mm-hmm. or Errol Flynn or the Marx Brothers. And all of them had multiple books, you know, and all of yeah. them, they had movies. <clears throat> Maybe you couldn't find all of their movies because they did so many movies but you could find a fair amount and so i just very naively thought everybody had a book written about them
2: yeah this is this is the thing especially when it's when with the warner stuff they're all such big characters aren't they so i mean it's like it really does surprise me especially when you see three on a match it's just absolutely like a blistering movie i showed it at the film club a, a couple of weeks ago and people were just like oh my god I can't believe what I just saw and that final scene as well I mean we won't spoil it for people but um it's it's not just like heartbreaking it's just like it's like being hit by a truck
0: (laughs) oh yeah the first time I saw it I had to stop like I didn't I didn't understand what was going on and then it all kind of happens and yeah and I just sat there kind of dumbfounded like what what did I just watch like oh it, it took my brain a while to catch up to like my emotion to figure out like what had happened <laughs> um yeah and it's so you know and I've seen that movie so many times since then and and mm. you know I just long for that that first time
2: yeah the the thrill of um seeing it with the film club is I think uh out of I think there were 50 of us in there and I think five of us had seen it and everyone was just saying oh you know everyone sort of chats about you know cooking recipes and uh, I've you know this is a score by you know xyz and then, you know everyone is very knowledgeable but um then uh, it started getting to the part where uh, she runs off with Lyles Harbor and um the little boy's wandering around looking for food and, and everyone was going, Ooh, hang on a minute, this is rather different from everything else. And she's like um she's like a corpse by the end of it, isn't she? Well, literally <laughs> but, but um it's um it's it's an astonishing performance. I mean one of the things that surprised me about Anne Borschak is that people don't know more about her because I know certainly know that you know, after that night, she had 45 more devotees. It just astounds me that with a film that brutal and that big and that powerful that that like you say, there aren't more or there haven't been biographies about her beforehand. Why? Why do you think that is?
0: Um, Well, she, you know, like when Three on a Match came out, it was just a it was just a Warner Brothers programmer. So mm-hmm. you know, pe- people saw it, but it wasn't a huge film. And you know, she ended up, you know, her her very first. Film. so she was at MGM as a chorus girl first film she's ever in that she acts in is scarface the 1932 scarface with paul muni and george raft and again wow. like she's she's 19 years old she's astounding mm. in it um mm. And so after on the strength of that, you know, Howard Hughes signs her to a contract and Warner Brothers becomes enamored with her and starts borrowing her and borrows her exclusively for six months. So for the first half of 1932, um, right. they're borrowing her and putting her in films. They finally buy her contract for $40,000, which I always like to point out that Howard Hughes sold Gene Harlow's contract to MGM for 30 grand. and wow. and. He got ten. He got ten thousand more dollars out of Anne, like as the, the depression's <laughs> really hitting the studio. Um, and on the set of one of the Warner Brothers movies, *The Strange Love of Molly Louvain*, she meets Leslie Fenton,
8: mm, who's the co-star yeah. in
0: the movie. They fall madly in love. He's ten years older than her. He, you know, acts in Hollywood, but signs with the studio and views Hollywood as a way to make a lot of money to then just go traips around Europe. So he saw. Acting Mm. in films as a way to bankroll his wanderlust. And so they um, elope after knowing each other for just a few weeks. And after the contract is sold, he convinced, you know, and I think, you know, she's, you know, in Warner Brothers worked their players to death. Like they just put them in so many movies. Mm. And so I think, you know, again, she's, you know, by this time 20 years old, she's in all of these movies. She does get a lot of publicity at the time she's you know in this this marriage you know and i think like you know 19 20 years old is the worst time to fall in love cuz i think it's some you know you can just um, i think it's just gripping and you know and to have it reciprocated so she's just head over heels for this guy who convinces her to walk out on her contract and go mm. honeymooning in europe for eight months and so she does uh, it's a fantastic trip, but you know, when she comes back, Warner, Warner Brothers takes her back and she she badmouths Warner Brothers on her way out the door and calls producers oh slave drivers and badmouths Howard Hughes, which he took exception to. And so yeah. she comes back, you know, in 33. You so know, Warner 32, Brothers- This is 32,
2: sorry, that this happened. I'm she leaves, yeah, July right July, the height.
0: July 32. Yeah, July, mm. 30, like after she films three on a match in July '32, 32, oh she, she leaves, she's gone for eight months. And when she comes back, you know, Warner Brothers kind of makes her sit around for a little while and loans mm. her out to Paramount for The Way to Love. And, you know, and they end up, you know, working her to death, um, you know, through 35. So she's you know, she, she makes a ton of movies at Warner Brothers, but they're not three on a match. They tend, you know, they tend mm. to be supporting roles. I mean, the you know, the, the code does come into effect so that the films themselves are, are you know, neutered quite a bit but mm-hmm. just a lot of her roles after that are just these kind of run-of-the-mill bland yeah, so she does a lot of that she ends you know she gets she ends up getting very frustrated and even though in 35 she starts to get some better roles so she does g-men with james Cagney, even though she has a really mm-hmm. small role but that's you know it's, it's a higher level picture she does mm-hmm. dr socrates with paul muni um bright lights with joey brown and then she lobbies hard to do a musical with rudy valley sweet music and so she does get those in 35 and her career Seems to be on a little bit more of an upswing with Warner Brothers. And then mm-hmm. something happened. I don't know if she she falls ill. And I don't know exactly I could never figure out exactly what happened, but she, she she did get ill so that she had a hard time working. Warner Brothers suspends her, which they're you know within their rights to do, because her contract said if you're sick and can't work, we're gonna suspend you and not pay you. And she just ends up going to war with them. She files a lawsuit against them to get out of her contract. Um, she actually filed her lawsuit two months before James Cagney filed his. So she <laughs> files hers at the end of 35. Cagney files his in 36. Betty Davis takes Warner Brothers to court in 36 as well. But Anne did it first. So she did it before the two of them. And she actually does go to court. Um, she She loses. Uh, but ultimately Warner Brothers like throws her in a couple more movies and then lets her out of her contract at the end of 36. So just kind of whenever her career would be on a, an upswing, she would sabotage herself. So she ends up freelancing for the rest of her career. And she does three movies with Columbia, like in 40. And again, like her career starts to look like it's gaining momentum. And then her husband who is British um, enlists in the Royal Navy. And goes overseas. She can't bear to be without him, so she leaves and goes overseas and spends, you know, two and a half years in England as an ambulance driver and a, a war correspondent. And so again, like that, that momentum is gone. You know, and then she comes back and she gets divorced and claims she's going to focus on her career and gets married again. And just kind of, you know, <laughs> she, she, she she never focuses on career as much as she should have. Yeah, you know, mm. and I think just in terms of her name recognition later on, her movies just really weren't available. Like her her best performances are the pre-code performances and mm. they just weren't yeah. they just weren't available. So I think until, you know, unless people had like 16 millimeter copies or it would, you know, show up at these rep houses, it's not really until the late nineties into the two thousands when her movies start becoming more available that I think people start to to pay more attention to her, which is, you know, which is how I discovered her.
2: So um post uh, Hollywood um, when she sort of uh, retired in sort of 51 was it or sort of early 50s or late 40s what what was uh, life like after that do you do you know much about that period
0: Yeah, so she she her last film was 51 I was an American spy and then she did um, I think a couple more TV programs like in 52 so I think 52 was when she basically stopped acting in front of the cameras uh, oh. by that time she had been married a third time and so um, the last husband um, seemed to have steered a lot of her decision-making. I could never really oh. figure, I don't know if she, I, I get the impression that she might've just been tired and done by that time in oh. terms of acting because the husband seemed to like money a lot. So it doesn't make sense that he would have her retire. <laughs> um, so they, uh, so up until 59, cause they, they end up moving to Hawaii in 59. So in the fifties, they end up, um, they, they try to ha- uh, launch like a documentary company. And so they, they try to like, you know, launch some TV shows and they buy all of this equipment and, and they, they do film things, but, um, and then they have like, I think they have re- recording equipment at their place in Malibu for people to come use as a recording studio. None of that really gets off the ground. And then there ends up being they use all of the equipment as collateral against a loan, and it gets foreclosed on, and everything gets taken out. Yeah. So that all just fizzles. Um, you know, she unfortunately, you know, does become a heavy drinker during this period. Um, the husband, you know, I think was very abusive. There were, you know, a handful of people I was able to talk to. Um, one of them was the the niece of the last husband, Nicholas Wade. And she ha- I think she referred to him as a psychopath. So I don't yeah. know how, yeah, it it, it wasn't <laughs> great. You know, Anne developed tuberculosis. So their last few years here in Los Angeles are not great. Um, she becomes estranged from her mother, you know, because of him. So they they moved to Hawaii in 59 and things seem to get a little bit better. They like start up a chemical company and again, just lots of just kind of weird. Random, weird thing. things, yeah. random things. Random things. Uh, My favorite thing she does is she writes an 18-volume abridged history of the world and (laughs) recorded herself reading it. Um, And I don't know when the earliest nonfiction audiobooks came on the scene. Um, I have to think this was one of the earlier ones. She wanted to uh, market it to universities as a teaching aid. And nobody understood what the hell it was. So I think I think she was ahead of her time. So it's kind of like a precursor to the Great Courses was Anne Dvorak's Historical Digest. In Hawaii, I found the gentleman who got the contents of her storage unit after she after she died bought her storage Ooh. unit, and unfortunately, most everything had been destroyed in a hurricane. Um, but I did get some like you know, publicity photos that she kept on hand, including some photos taken by George Harrell. And I'm like, well, what else was there? And he's like, well, there were a lot of records. So I'm almost wondering if maybe she had put recorded things on disc maybe, I don't know. Yeah. And then and then I also was contacted by somebody who seems to have ended up with some of the contents of her apartment after she died. And that was this whole weird odyssey. This person um, <clears throat> who was, Uh, a very, very troubled person in Reno, uh, actually had Anne's scrapbook from that honeymoon, that 1932 honeymoon. And so I had to haggle with her and got that. And I also got like a bunch of canceled rent checks and a journal that had just like one entry where Anne summed up her life, which is in the book and was fantastic. And her, you know, like green stamps and a lot of odds and ends. Um, and you know, we had to haggle with her and my friend, Darren, who has been on this Anne Odyssey with me, because he's, he's a Norma Shearer collector, um, I, he's an agent. And so I had to have him haggle with this woman in Reno to get these things for me. And at the end of it all, after the money had been wired and the FedEx had been sent, she goes, oh, do you want the other Anne stuff I have? And he was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, there, there, there's a van with a few more boxes. And we're like, oh. And this woman ended up like getting arrested right after she got the money. And so we never figured out what was in the van. So we still have hope that at some point she'll contact him not me um and so i almost want to that That is like my hope is that the historical digest reels are in the van
2: her her post movie career sounds um sounds almost as eventful as her movie career in in a lot of ways then well back to the movies i mean um if you were i mean you are the definitive voice on um, um, uh, dvorak sorry um if you were um talking to a novice and they asked you for a good place to start movie wise what would be the best three movies do you think for them to start with
0: yeah three, three on a match mm-hmm. um is you know, I think her most powerful performance mm-hmm. uh you know and it is one of the earlier ones Scarface just because I think everybody should see Scarface um even mm-hmm. without Anne I think it's you know I, I adore Howard Hawks he, he's my favorite mm-hmm. director so she is fantastic in that as well um you know, I also I hate to just recommend pre code. So there's also the, the strange love of Molly Louvain, and it's not the strongest pre code, but it is one of the few movies where she is the actual star. Like she you know, she mm. is the title character, um, and I think she's absolutely wonderful in that. So I do recommend that. Um, I also personally love a movie she did in the post war era called The Private Affairs of Bellamy, and it's with oh, okay. um, jo- with George Sanders and Angela Lansbury, and it's it's a very understated role for her. So she, you know, she, she's very good at these high wire performances, like in Scarface and Three on a Match, where she's just like, just energy, just like emanating mm-hmm. out of her and she's about to explode. And the, the same goes for a movie she did called A Life of Her Own with Lana Turner in 1950. Um, mm-hmm. But she's only, she's only in it for, I think, 10 minutes and she's magnificent. And I think if, if Anne ever deserved an Oscar nomination, it would have been for A Life of Her Own. Um, but she's in it for such a short period of time that um, I recommend The Private Affairs of Bellamy, which I think is, um, I think it's interesting. It's, it's George Sanders just at his caddy, caddy best. Um, and it's just this really, I think, understated, reserved performance for Anne. And I think the, the costume and set designs in, in that film are fantastic. So that's one I always like to throw out. Perfect.
2: Well, thank you so much for coming onto the show and for writing the book. I mean, speaking of someone who devotes a lot of his own time to chronicling the stories of these people there are so many characters from this era whose stories have yet to be told and Anne for me has been one of these people who I think I'm not alone when I say she really does strike you as special when you see her on screen so for you to have produced such a detailed investigation into who she actually was is a very great service to her memory, I think. And so on behalf of the world, thank you very much for that. What are you, uh, what are you working on next? Um, what's coming in for you next?
0: Yeah, so I actually, um, dur- during the pandemic, I finished a book on Jane Russell. Wow. Um, yeah, so that was, you know, there's actually, other, other than Jane's own memoir, which came out in 1985, there's never been a book on Jane Russell. Which is kind of astounding, what? given how much name recognition she to this day still has.
2: See, I, when I when I um looked uh, looked, at, I, I'm not going to play dumb and say I didn't know the Jane Russell book was coming. I did I did know it was coming. Um, but um, yeah, you mentioned that this is the first work on her she's astounding really it's it's another Anne (laughs) Voshek you found and she she was a massive name as well
0: yeah massive name still has a lot you know she's like the opposite of Anne and that she still has so much name recognition and so that was actually my 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 publisher which is the University Press of Kentucky um you know initially when when I finished the book on Anne I was never going to write another Hollywood biography again because it had just Mm. you know It 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 was such an undertaking, but after a few months, I'm like, oh, I guess I could do that again. (laughs) It's kind of like child. It wasn't that bad, and the finished product's kind of cool. Um, So I went to so I went to Kentucky, and I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about doing another book, and I just don't know. I'm I'm not sure who who I'd want to do, Um, you know, because the the last I'd say the last like 10, 15 years, you know, a lot of these actors, you know, there there have been works produced on them, and so. and they suggested Jane Russell, and she would have never occurred to me. And I thought, ah. And when I started researching her, she's you know really fascinating, and I think people are aware of her, you know, because of *Gentlemen Prefer Blondes* and you know because of *The Outlaw* and her association with Howard Hughes. Um, but I don't think people really know a lot about her or have actually seen a whole lot of her movies. So uh, yeah, it was it's been really really interesting. And so I finished that up. Um, yeah, it's interesting that I'm writing about the, these two actresses that were, you know, got their start with Howard Hughes. So I've I've become, mm. you know, I've learned a lot about Howard Hughes, who is just <laughs> equally fascinating in many, many ways. Um, so yeah, so I, I really enjoy, you know, the, the Jane Russell book was a very different, you know, very different experience for than, than, than Anne. Cause Jane is hyper-documented and was around for so long. And mm. the last 20 years of her life got dragged out for interviews all the time. And she was always very happy to oblige. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to people learning about Jane. Cause she, she is fascinating that's coming out, uh, in mid June, 2021 from university press of Kentucky. And I do, for those of you listening who are in um, the United States, I do encourage you to get on the waiting list for, um, for the Jane Russell book at Larry Edmonds Bookshop in Hollywood. And that's how you can get uh, an assigned copy. And I've also created um, postcard sets of Jane Russell costume tests from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. So um, we really wanna throw business to, to independent bookstores and uh, particularly Larry Edmonds. So if you can, uh, that would be fantastic. And then um, my family, since we've been stuck in the house, I have a 10 year old daughter Gable and we've been you know watching, lots and lots of movies obviously and so um we thought we'd make it a little bit more fun for her because we don't give her a lot of (laughs) choice and whether she has to watch movies (laughs) with us Um, so we're actually on the verge of launching our own podcast the little miss movies podcast yeah where we watch movies with her and then um we talk about them and it's it's fun to get the perspective of a 10 year old and it's it's fun you know, especially for these movies that we're all so familiar with and kind of take for granted to, to watch a movie with somebody for the first time so we watched Citizen Kane with her and mm. what did she think she I think she was fine throughout it like it held her attention mm. and she was cool and then the ending came mm. and it blew her away like it was really? a delight it blew her even like two hours later I was tucking her into bed and she's like I just can't believe that's how it ended oh my god it was it was like it yeah so like what yeah watching Citizen Kane with somebody for the first time um was was pretty great uh I think like Empire Strikes Back we watched when she was like three or four years old so she was too young to understand how cool it was and she was mm. like, Oh, that that's what Buzz Lightyear says in that movie. I was like, Oh man, no, but <laughs> Citizen Kane was just a very pure experience. So um, mm. yeah, so the Little Miss Movies podcast will be coming very soon so like our first episode we recorded a few weeks ago was our halloween episode where we did jaws which she's become mm. obsessed with we did jaws poltergeist and halloween 3 and we did citizen kane and we're about to do my husband loves wes anderson so we've been watching wes anderson movies so now it is it is going to run the entire gamut um, of of yeah of of film history so but I think I'll I'll probably have to to battle against my husband a little bit to show her I've been showing her a lot of um the Criterion Channel has had Joan Blundell movies on so we've right. been watching a lot of Joan <laughs> we've watching a lot of Joan Blundell movies <laughs> so um, yeah she's she's kind of amazed that guy kibbe shows up in kind of everything <laughs> <That> is, <laughs> our running gag is oh look abel guy kibbe your favorite
2: <laughs> i remember i watched them i watched footlight parade actually i wasn't even watching it with the children i just had it on on my ipad while i was cooking dinner one day and um the biowaterfall number started and as it did uh, my my, <laughs> my youngest son walked in and just sort of was hypnotised by the sight on screen. And then my middle daughter walked in and the same thing happened. And I kind of turned around and everyone in the household was sort of crowded behind me, sort of mouth hung open, uh, agog watching this, uh, you know, these shapes in the water. I couldn't believe they were actually people. You know, I think even the dog was sat sat by us, just sort of, you know, head head tilted to one side, Something about them. But um, I think they, they won't forgive me now because I, I showed them the innocence on Halloween. And um, I'd forgotten how scary that film is <laughs> um, yeah
0: my husband's a huge horror fan like desperately mm. wants to that, that is why we watched Halloween 3 because I told him you are not showing her Halloween 1 <laughs> it is a fantastic movie and too scary um, but she, yeah we, we watched Footlight Parade she loved it she absolutely mm. loved it so.
2: so much fun so much.
0: fun. Oh it's so ridiculous it is so like r- ridiculously wonderful and just for my there there's a scene where there's like all of the you know when all of the the cast are like locked in and getting you know and they're you know, yeah. quarantined to get ready and <laughs> one of the extras is actually wearing a costume that Anne Dvorak wears in The Strange Love of Molly Louvain. So that is um, that,
2: that takes a trained eye, Christina. That it
0: does. does. I know. At I was. Knowledge. I stopped. I'm like, wait, what? What? Go back. Go back. And my daughter's like, what? And I, and I, I pull up a photo of her wearing it, and yeah, my, my kid just kind of rolls her eyes. Um, at a lot of things now that that you know now now that she's gaining a better understanding of exactly who her mother is, um, she, uh, she rolls her nice. eyes a lot.
2: <laughs> well and, uh, and Vorak. sorry I keep saying Vorschach I sort of trained myself for months to say Vorschach and now I feel really pretentious <laughs> well and Vorak, Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel is out now Mean, Moody and Magnificent is the, is the Jane Russell biography and that's out in June of 2021 thank you so much for coming on today to tell us about one of Hollywood's best kept secrets you are doing the Lord's work so thank you very much and the petition starts here do you think for an Anne Vorschak
0: Funko Pop? Oh absolutely. Yes. Make it make Let's it happen. Make, make make a Scarface. Yeah, make a Cheska Comante Funko Pop happy people. <laughs> <laughs> Do your work, internet. Do your work.
2: <laughs> and Little Miss Movies is coming soon. Thank you, Christina. Thanks for coming.
0: Take care. She just a girl.
11: But she's on fire.
3: Frank Sinatra, chairman of the board. One of the best. Here's a song that he did back in 1948. Actually, the song was written in 1931 by Gerald Marks and Seymour Simons. It's awfully fun. Great song. Great arrangement. Great recording. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, All of Me.
11: All of me. Why not take all of me? Can't you see I'm no good? Without you Take my lips I want to lose them Take my arms I'll never use them Your goodbye Left me with eyes that cry How can I Get along Without you You took the part That once was my heart So why not, why not Take all of me All of me Come on, get all of me Can't you see I'm just a mess Without you Take my lips I want to lose them Get a piece of these arms I'll never use them Your goodbye Left me with eyes That cry How can I it without you, you know, you got the part used to be my heart. So, why not? Why not take all of me?
2: And that was all of Rob for today. Thank you, Rob, for your stellar choices there, sir. And do not fret, as Rob will be back in the coming shows to dish out some more beautiful melodies. My profound thanks to Christina Rice for joining me for that interview there, talking about the wonderful Andvorak. Christina has very kindly offered to share some of the incredible Andvorak treasures with one of you lucky folks. Christina is offering to one very lucky winner first a signed copy of her book and Vorac Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel along with a signed copy of The Inseparables which is a specially curated book collection of And Vorac and Leslie Fenton's 1932 honeymoon pictures it's beautiful Also included are four publicity portraits of Anne. These are the very pictures Anne once owned and which she would sign and send to her fans when they wrote to her. These are from Anne Dvorak's own personal collection. It's a staggering prize. And Christina is ready to send it all out to one lucky Anne Dvorak loving fan out there. Unfortunately, this is only open to US listeners only. So if you'd like to be in with a chance, then all you have to do is click on the link in the show notes of this episode and identify the blurred-out picture of one of Anne Vorak's most famous co-stars. You'll see an entry form beneath the image. Just put in your answer, and you're entered. I'll reveal the winner on the next episode. And do make sure you check out Christina and her work at ChristinaWrights.com and at AnnDvorak.com. And you can follow Christina on Twitter at, at Christina Rice. And do make sure that you subscribe to the Little Miss Movies podcast, which is out now. Well, how about I throw a few Ann Dvorak movies your way? Three helpings of Ann, a quote quickie, a not so quote quickie, and one huge starring role for her. First up, a film where the makers take the most basic plot point they can, tack the word lady onto the end, and voila, there's your film title. 1937's Racing Lady, then, starring Anne with Harry Carey. And here's a clip.
12: Even Johnny knows what Pepper Mary could do in a real race.
2: Honey, if you
5: don't stop talking racing... You'll be asking me to end a kid Kitty did next, tell him she can beat Top Row.
12: But, Dad, listen. You know that the breeder who races his horses makes more sales than one who doesn't.
2: The Martins are well-respected horse trainers who seem to be on the verge of the big time with their latest animal, Pepper Mary. But as ever, the criminals want in on the success and try unsuccessfully to bribe Tom Martin to lose the race. You better
9: think it over, Martin.
5: No, I don't play
9: the game that way. You're making a mistake money talks.
5: Not your kind of money, mister.
2: To make sure Pepper Mary doesn't win, the bad guys hobble the horse, meaning that she can never race again. But Tom's daughter, Ruth, is determined to do her best. To rear Pepper Mary's daughter, Katie did, to be the horse her mother could have been.
12: I just want to win a race.
2: Now,
13: what are your plans for the horse?
12: Well, I don't actually know. I was going to enter her in a stake race, but the entry fee is too high.
13: Well, i would only seen you yesterday before we parlayed our
2: assets.
9: As it is, our parlay didn't (laughs) parlay.
12: Thanks just the same, but I can enter her in a cheaper race.
2: But when the Martins lose ownership of Katie did in a claiming race, Ruth is made an offer by the new owner, Steve Wendell, an automobile mogul.
12: You can't really mean to keep her. Why, this was her first race. She isn't important enough.
14: But you are. Me? You see, I thought that if I claim Katie did, well, I might be able to persuade you to come along too.
12: But I'm only interested in my own horse
14: You can train her better in my stables than you can alone At the same time, you'll be handling the finest horses money can buy What do you say, Miss Martin?
2: There's nothing for it Ruth will have to go to work for handsome, rich Steve A man she dislikes due to his... There's no reason at all to dislike Steve So what do you think will happen between them? brief little film but lots of fun i'm not into horse racing in the slightest and thankfully you don't need to be this is far more concerned with being one of those will they won't they romance stories between a country girl with horses in her blood and a rich city slicker with literally zero faults and yet there's a fair old share of agonizing from ruth who takes one look at the guy and decides to write him off because i don't actually know why it was based on a story by damon runyon should give you an idea of the sort of earthy characters it contains my favorite of the lot is Tom played by Harry Carey he of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington fame and Anne as Ruth is really delightful she's just as at ease in dungarees and plaid shirts as she is in negligees and nightgowns and while Racing Lady certainly doesn't end up in most people's top 10 Dvorak lists it's a really diverting fun little story the love story part of it arrives really late into the film, and it's a little bit hard to swallow. But if you want a nice, concise little Anne romp that'll leave you with a smile on your face, then definitely check out Three on a Match. <laughs> I'm kidding. Check out Racing Lady. It's 59 minutes long. 59! 59! On to something a lot more trademark, Warner 1935's Dr. Socrates, Dvorak's second pairing with Mr. Paul Muni. For my money, the best actor in classic Hollywood. I truly think he was the De Niro of his day. This is directed by the marvellous William Dieterle and also stars Barton MacLean, Hobart Cavanaugh, Samuel Hines and Mayo Matho. And here's a clip. The Republic of
1: Plato. Oh, a political book, eh? Philosophy. Hmm, I'm quite a reader myself. No, really? Yeah, murder mysteries. I read almost every one that comes out.
2: Oh, well, that's fine.
1: <sighs> sure, they teach us something.
2: <sighs> Muni plays Dr. Cardwell, a city slicker doctor who's escaped to the country to practice in a sleepy town after the death of his fiancee. The townsfolk call him Dr. Socrates because he loves to read philosophy books, those crazy bumpkins.
5: Well, if it isn't my colleague Dr. Socrates. How's old Sock tonight? Doc Cardwell's from the city, you know, boy. I know. Chicago. We country bumpkins seem kind of crude to a man of Doc's education, but praise be he has his books. Yes, sir, books by Poles, I, Italians and Greeks. Might have found a Greek philosopher. Doc Cardwell was in for Acropolis, Erosyphus, Socrates. (laughs) That's why I call him Dr. Socrates.
2: (laughs) One night, the Doctor is visited by notorious gangster on the run, Red Bastion, played by Barton MacLean, who needs a bullet removed. Shortly afterwards, Red picks up a hitchhiker, Josephine, played by Anne, roping her in when he robs a bank, during which... Red shoots Josephine for trying to escape.
1: We was lucky to escape with only Eddie getting hurt. Eddie wasn't the only victim, Mr. Suggs. There's a fellow killed right in front of the Emporium. A young Ward boy that married little Emmy just last week. And a girl, she's laying on the streets right now. Uh, One of them hitchhikers. Hitchhiking my foot? She's one of them. One of them? One One of the bandits. She jumped out of their car. Oh, that don't
5: seem likely. I was sitting there the whole while. Or standing, anyway, with my hands in the air. I
15: seen the one woman driving the car, but settle that quick enough. There's young Duck Cardwell loading her in his car right
2: now. Josephine is treated at the doctor's house, during which time they grow ever closer. But it isn't long before Red's back on the scene with revenge in mind. You see, so many of these movies come and go. If you're a B-movie fan, you put a couple of stars in a tiny little story. You put a hackneyed conceit at the heart of things, and you just let it dribble out onto the screen. Believe me, I don't know much about much, but when it comes to B-movies, I do know my stuff. And so Dr. Socrates began, much like all those other second features, there's a background threat. Check. Couple of big stars playing against the gallery of familiar supporting faces. Check. But then it does something very smart. It ramps up the charm. It puts the crime stuff to one side in favor of a rather charming little tale about small-town prejudice and the power of gossip, all tied up with a sweet little romantic bow You start off believing that Red Bastion and his antics are going to be the main drivers of this thing, and they certainly do provide a good old climax to the thing. But when you find yourself far more caught up in Dr. Socrates, you discover that it's because of his slow winning over of the small town's inhabitants. It's quite a surprise. Anne is her usual dreamy self, honestly so naturally beautiful and sweet, that it's a surprise that Doc Sock takes so long to summon up the words to tell her so, that she acts... Paul Muni off the screen is a real compliment to her playing, even in such a run-of-the-mill story. The real ace up its sleeve, though, is the town itself. You really do find yourself falling in love with it. It's all soda counters on the corner and street squares and town halls and picket fences. It's the small-town Americana place of your sweetest dreams. It reminded me so much of Bedford Falls from It's a Wonderful Life. So to put a love story, gangster story, and a human drama in its midst was a lovely surprise. Look, it'll never win Oscars for Best Pictures. Its scale is far too small for that. But Dr. Socrates is a really sweet, genuinely appealing little surprise of a film that certainly won me over. Trust me, Dr. Socrates from 1935. Give it a chance. You'll adore it. On to perhaps Anne's best dramatic role outside of Three on a Match, then. You heard Christina mention it in the interview there. 1932's The Strange Love of Molly Louvain, directed by Michael Curtis, and starring Anne alongside Lee Tracy, Guy Kibbe, Leslie Fenton, and Frank McHugh. So a very Warner affair.
12: Hello, Molly. Hello, Mr. Grant. What can I do for you? Plenty,
2: baby. Plenty.
12: Cigars or cigarettes? I just
16: dropped in to let you know I was back in town. And from now on, baby, everything's gonna be okay for you.
12: Things are okay. You should be a mind-beater instead of a rubber-goods peddler.
9: Ah, that was last season. I've got a new line this season.
12: You've always got a new line. What is it this time?
9: Silk stockings.
12: You should do well. You've had enough experience.
17: Yeah, there's just one thing got me worried. What? That I might come back here and find
1: you gone. I mean it. They're the only piece of Class A scenery this town has to offer.
12: Better take a good look while you're here.
2: The story follows Molly Levain, played by Anne, who is romanced by a society boy falling head over heels in love with him. So much so, in fact, that she falls pregnant with his child. The film actually opens with her telling him that she's pregnant. He promises to stand by her, though, and even invites her to his palatial home to meet his mother that very evening. But when Molly arrives, she receives a nasty shock.
12: Hi, Miss Levain. Mr. Rogers was to call for me at the hotel at 8 o'clock, but...
5: Oh, yes, Miss Levain. Young Mr. Rogers and his mother left for New York quite suddenly tonight. The party's been cancelled. Mr. Rogers left this note to be delivered to you. I had intended to send it to your hotel in the morning. Mr. Rogers told me to convey his sincerest regrets.
2: I'm sorry, Miss. In need of a safe harbour, she falls into the arms of small-time crook Nick Grant, played by Leslie Fenton, who does his best to twist Molly to his way of life. But after three years, she can no longer take it. Leaving her child with a good family, Molly hits the road in search of some kind of life. But Nick isn't willing to give her up that easily. And before she knows it, she's been implicated in one of Nick's cop killings.
12: They got Nick. I see it all now. He stole a car, pulled a job, and then took us out for a ride and tried to shoot his way out when they got him.
2: Well, it might
11: be murdered.
12: If it is, they'll stop at nothing to get us.
11: Why don't we go down to the cops and explain the whole thing?
12: Don't make me laugh. What, tell them we were out riding in the car and didn't know how it all happened? We wouldn't have a chance.
2: Has Nick ever done this before?
12: I guess that's how he's been getting his money lately.
2: Molly goes into hiding with her pal Jimmy, played by Richard Cromwell, but hot on her trail is ace reporter Scotty Cornell, played by Lee Tracy, who swears he'll track down this supposedly villainous mole and bring her to justice. It just so happens that his next door neighbor in the tenement building is Molly herself, who's swiftly falling in love with Scotty.
9: Do you think that double-crossing dame could have given me a phony number?
12: I thought you said you knew your types.
9: Sure, I did. You're the same class as one of the tinsel girls.
12: What do you mean, tinsel?
9: Looks swell on a Christmas tree, but you can't stand up in the rain.
12: And when did you see me in the rain?
9: Don't have to. After you've been around a while, you get the world
18: pretty well-classed.
12: You're kidding yourself. You think you can guess them that easy?
18: They print what I guess.
12: Oh, yeah? And you never guess wrong. If you call them hard, they're hard. If you say they're tough, they're tough. Sweet, they're sweet. Beautiful, innocent. You never renege, never retract. Look at them once and you can't go wrong. Gee, it must be great to be the guy who knows all about
2: women. It's a pretty breathless little thriller that begins at a really breakneck pace. It has a slightly more ponderous second act in which the threat begins to grow all around poor Molly and then it finishes with a real whammy of a third act. Now, Christina was not lying when she said that this is a star role for Anne. She is magnificent in this. In fact, she really is the best thing in it by a mile. The male performers in this go from completely bland to downright parasitic and annoying. Perfectly representing this are Leslie Fenton on one hand, who for my money cannot act his way out of a paper bag, and then Lee Tracy on the other hand, who made me want to claw out my own eyes. He is so irritating. Thankfully, however, the real star of this thing is Anne Dvorak, who really does shine. She plays heartbreaking, she plays romantic, she plays sassy, she plays dramatic. She's like a perfect blend of Glenda Farrell, Joan Blondell, Barbara Stanwyck, and Betty Davis in this thing. There's a scene at the beginning where she's just being jilted by her society boy, so she sits at the piano, slightly drunk and hammers out a tune singing her little heart out just as it's breaking and it's a remarkably poignant moment she's on fire in this film it has a great deal to say about how females are used up and spit out by society and especially in molly's case how good looks can be a curse and a blessing she's almost constantly being circled by wolves and heartbreakingly the only way she seems to be able to get anything done is by playing up to them. At points she looks completely exhausted by it all and it's at those points that you suddenly jolt and remember that you're watching a movie. It's that believable. I won't spoil the third act for you but it is powerful, it is devastating and she plays it perfectly it blows my mind that anne isn't as lauded these days as stanwick or davis because she really could hold her own against any of them watch three on a match if you don't believe me and if you think dad films a fluke then watch her in this she is spellbinding well a completely left field radio choice for you i'm terribly sad to report that and vorak did not make any kind of significant old-time radio appearance so while it would have been a great pleasure indeed to present her for you now we will instead settle for one of her more illustrious co-stars paul muni starred with her twice first in scarface of course and secondly in 1935's dr socrates Terribly sorry to report that neither of those were adapted for the air, but Muni himself was incandescent in everything he did. So we'll throw the radio baton over to him today. I've played the story of Louis Pasteur in the past. This time we'll go to another biopic of his, The Life of Emile Zola, which is a truly wonderful story, so educational, and with a blistering performance by Muni as Zola. So strap in. We're going to the past in the company of Paul Muni and the life of Emile Zola. See you afterwards.
15: From Hollywood, California, the Lux Radio Theater presents Paul Muni in the life of Emile Zola with Josephine Hutchinson and as guest producer, Mr. Leslie Howard.
9: Lux presents Hollywood. To the thousands of loyal listeners who wouldn't miss a Monday night with us, to the thousands of women who insist on Lux Flakes, we extend our grateful thanks. It is your loyalty to our product that makes these programs possible, and it is your purchases of Lux Flakes that have made Lux the world's largest-selling packaged soap for fine fabrics. Women everywhere depend on gentle Lux for their own and the children's things because they know Lux lives up to its famous promise... It's safe for everything safe in water alone. Our play tonight, filmed by Warner Brothers and winner of the Academy Award, is the drama of one who challenged the world with his writings and fought fearlessly with the spoken word in the cause of justice, Emil Zola. Mr. Paul Muni, who created the role on the screen, will repeat his performance, and with him, you'll hear Josephine Hutchinson. Lewis Silvers conducts our music, and as special guest between the acts. Is the man who directed the film version of our play, Mr. William Dieterle? Our regular producer, Cecil B. DeMille, will be back with us again next Monday night. Filling his place is the star and co director of Pygmalion, who is in Hollywood for the filming of his current picture, Gone with the Wind, and who has been here during the past week preparing tonight's production. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest producer, Mr. Leslie Howard.
18: Thank you, Mr. Rueck. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is an exceptional evening. We have an exceptional star, we have an exceptional play. Paul Muni in the life of Emil Zola. I doubt if the screen has ever known an actor who drives himself harder than tonight's star. In his current Warner Brothers picture, Juarez, went 64 weeks of preparation before Mr. Muni was ready to face the camera. And just as exhaustive was his research into the life of the man he plays tonight, Emil Zola. With Mr. Muni comes another real artist, that very fine actress, Miss Josephine Hutchinson, in the part of Zola's wife, Alexandrine. And now, we journey to another place and another time. We cross the Atlantic and we pause in France, a France of 75 years ago, and so begin the life of Emile Zola. <laughs> Paris in 1862. Louis-Napoleon is Emperor of France, and his reign is one of suppression. New thoughts, liberal ideas are vigorously opposed. The great city lies beaten under the lash of authority. It's deep winter. A biting wind screams across the roofs of the Latin Quarter, rattling the frost-covered windows of squalid garret rooms. Behind one of these windows is the young Emile Zola shock of unruly hair crowns his gaunt hunger pinched face and his eyes burn feverishly as he stuffs rags into the window panes from the other side of the bare drafty room his friend Cezanne the painter speaks quietly it's no use Emile. places like a sieve
17: it would take all the rags of Paris to stop half its holes Paris vast
16: motionless a gigantic mother brooding over her millions of children good and bad it's magnificent, Cezanne. You must paint it. Like someday I will write it. No, Zola. It's hopeless. Useless. Wasting our youth like this. Butting our heads against a stone wall. Look at us. Not a sou between us. No wood for a fire, not even a crust of bread. But we're young and ripe. We're still stammering, groping for our way. But when we find it, Cezanne, I shall write what I see. Slices of life. Real. Ruthless. Oh, stop chasing rainbows, Emile. People don't want to see the stock paste of truth.
17: They much prefer perfumed lies like these, the books of hypocrites and liars. <laughs> they ought to be burned like something unclean.
16: Burned? That's splendid. Why didn't you think of that before? We'll have a fire. Hand them over. Wait, wait. We, we could sell them, Emil. What? And expose others to their stinking hypocrisies? No, my friend. Burn them and let their lying pages warm the bones of men of truth. <laughs> <laughs> Emile, the smoker. Uh, I can't breathe. <laughs> Paul! Oh, Close that window. Do you want me to catch my death cold? But we'll suffocate. That will be better than perishing from a miserable draft. Ah, oh, you and your drafts. I shall die of one someday. You'll see. Open windows are dangerous. Oh. It's a concierge. For the rent. He'll toss us into the street. Don't let him in. Tell him I'm in bed. Some horrible disease is catching. Anything. Who? Who's there?
10: Emile's mother.
16: Madame Zola. Come in, Madame Zola. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mama.
10: What are you doing in bed so early? Emile, you are ill.
16: Nonsense, Mama. We thought you were the man for the rent, that's all.
10: Oh, Emile, it tears my heart out to see you living like this. But now it is going to end. Alexandrine. Come and make this rascal of mine listen.
16: Alexandrine. Good
10: afternoon, Emile.
19: Alexandrine, what brings you here? We have good news for you. Good news?
10: Tell him. We have a job for
19: you, Emile. A job? With Leroux, the book publisher. We arranged everything this morning. You will be a
16: clerk. And now we can get married. Oh, Emile. A job? Marvelous. I'll, I'll have time to finish my book. Maybe even get Leroux to publish it. Cezanne. Yes. Take Montmartre's coat and hock. Yes, 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 Yes. here. Get meat and bread. Uh, I'll have wine. We'll We'll celebrate. That's right. Cezanne, we have a job. (laughs) Cezanne, we have have a job. We we have have a
8: job. We have a a a job. job. Emile. Emile.
16: Emile. Alexandrine. You must not come here to the shop. Monsieur Larue has issued orders.
19: I had to come. Oh, I hate to trouble you, Emile, but... The butcher, he refuses us any more credit.
16: But you told him we'd settle at the end of the month.
19: He wants his money now. And the landlord was very nasty about the rent.
17: Zola, Monsieur Larue wants you in his office right away. Uh, Very well. I'll do what I can. Don't worry. you understand, Monsieur, this book was not published by me. I knew nothing about it. Nothing whatsoever. Well, we shall see. Monsieur Larue? Come in, Zola. Zola? This gentleman here is an agent of the police. He has something to say to you. Yes, monsieur? You have a book published called *The Confessions of Claude. Is that right? Yes. It is my duty to tell you that the public prosecutor is highly displeased. Why? It's a bad book. Badly written, you mean? It is an offensive book. It will do great harm to public morals. I beg your pardon, but... Keep quiet, Zola. We've been watching your writings, young man. You're a troublemaker. These articles of yours, attacking our leading men of letters, the arts, criticizing the civic authorities...
16: Perhaps you know something better for me to criticize. I don't want any of your
17: impudence.
1: And I'm telling you, you've got to stop it. This is an official warning. And I hope I won't have to come here again.
17: Well, Zola? I didn't mean to get you into trouble, Monsieur Larue. I... Why do you have to write such muck-breaking stuff when there are so many pleasant things in life? And so many unpleasant things. That is not your business while you're working for me. From now on, you'll attend strictly to your work. And stop writing trash! No, monsieur. What? Is that a bad exchange for a a job?
16: very bad exchange.
17: You're a foolish young man. If you prefer to go hungry, that's your business. You're discharged.
16: I'm very grateful to you, monsieur Larue. Grateful? Yes, for allowing me to devote all my time to my writing.
17: Then go ahead with your scribbling. Maybe a lean stomach will teach you better. But a fat
16: stomach like yours... Sticks out too far, Monsieur Uh, Leroux. It prevents you from looking down and seeing what's going on around you. While you continue to grow fatter and richer, publishing your nauseating confectionery, I shall become a mole, digging here, rooting there, where life is hard, raw, and ugly. I'll stir up the whole rotten mess. You will not like the smell of my books, Monsieur Leroux. Neither will the public prosecutor. But if the stench is strong enough, maybe something will be done about it. Good day, Monsieur
14: I'm sorry but i can't print this in my paper but monsieur. they're
16: true all these things are true the horrible conditions in the factories and the minds of the way the men
14: live i said i'm sorry i have no it. in
15: this article you say the army is honeycombed with graft that they're provoking the prussians into war yes yes it is the truth but i cannot print it but why why because monsieur it is the
20: truth Buy some of these things.
15: Ten francs
16: for the lot. Why I'm doing it, I don't know. Thank you, Monsieur Charpentier. You won't regret it. You'll see see how they'll sell. You'll see... And this book, too. Perhaps you like that. A book? What kind of a book? A story of a girl, a poor girl from Artois who came to Paris and lived in the slums. Sounds like trash. I'm not interested. It would be, Monsieur, if you'd only read it. I call it Nana. Nana. Nana.
17: Finest book I've ever read.
4: Give me a copy of Nana, please. Nana. It's
10: really
6: a sensation. Everyone's reading it. Nana, please. Nana. Le no, by Émile Zola, please. Sorry,
1: but we're sold out. We'll have more tomorrow. Uh,
6: who is the man who wrote that book?
1: Émile Zola, madame.
6: I never heard of him. Mm, you
1: will,
15: madame. Believe me,
13: you will. La Fortune des Rougrands
11: by Émile Zola. La Curie by Émile Zola. Le Ventre de Paris by Émile Zola. La Conquête de Placent. La Semoire. Mm. by Émile Zola. Here,
20: my friend, in every store, on every street corner in Paris, they talk of nothing but your books. Yes, the years have been kind to us, Emile. And I'm lucky to be your publisher. (laughs) Nonsense. But you're famous, Emile. Who else knows the people of France as you do?
16: How they love to cry over a pretty heroine. No, no, Charpentier, that is not why they buy my books. It's because they tell the truth. That is why. Truth. Listen, soldiers... They're marching this way. The crowd cheering. For what?
20: You there, soldier! Where are you going? Haven't you heard? We're bound for Berlin. War has been declared. War. War with Germany. Heal us! Heal us!
10: We shall all be murdered in our beds. The Germans at the very gates of Paris. There isn't a morsel of food. Even the horse flesh has been sold
19: out. How
16: will it end, Emile? How does it always end? In misery, in suffering, in the blood of the people. But those are the fortunes of war. Those are indeed the fortunes of war. The whole rotten structure had to collapse before we could learn the truth. But France shall know why. I shall name her betrayers. She shall see see who led her men to the slaughter who's responsible for her downfall.
13: The Downfall. The Downfall by Emil Zola. I tell you, monsieur Zola, as the chief censor of France, I will not tolerate this book.
16: Sorry, monsieur Le Saint-Jean.
13: Listen to what you have written here.
16: I believe I can remember.
13: Listen. The army was governed by dry rot and slow paralysis. The general staff were mediocre, of an ignorance past belief. But if the army made mistakes, monsieur. The army does not make mistakes. Really? How interesting. Every book you've written has caused us trouble. You attacked the Second Empire. You attacked the Third Republic. And now this downfall attacking our army. Such a book makes the public lose confidence and respect. Lose confidence in inefficiency,
16: lose respect for cowardice and stupidity. That would be a pity, monsieur.
13: Nevertheless, you'll write no more such books, monsieur Zola.
16: Except perhaps one about the rascality of army-ridden politicians.
13: The chief censor, perhaps. What? That's an idea. No, no. Uh, I mean, uh, you're a reasonable man, monsieur Zola. We only wish to do what is best for our country. That is so, isn't it?
16: You'll do what is best for yourself by leaving me strictly alone to write what I please, as I please. Good day, monsieur. Are
19: you working, Emil?
16: Hmm? Uh, no no, 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 my dear. Come in.
19: But I thought you had so much to do.
16: Yes, yeah, so I have, so I have. Somehow it won't come. Ah, uh, well... Perhaps
8: tomorrow.
16: All packed, my dear? We're leaving soon.
19: Emile, what about your new book? Charpentier is waiting for it.
16: I know, I know. But you
19: promised, dear. And if we're going to be traveling so much, I don't now, see... Now,
16: now, now, don't worry so, Alexandrine. I, I, I'm I, going to work on the boat uh, every day. Every day. You you just wait and see,
20: I've been saying to myself, today Emile will send me his book. Now you're here, Emile, and still you
16: have nothing for me. But you must give me time, Charpentier.
20: Time? You've had
16: three years. Has it been that long? <laughs> oh, well, we're not as spry as we used to be, eh, Charpentier? <laughs> Out of, there. Out of there! More wine! Fill the gases,
4: gentlemen. I have a rare
17: treat in store
16: for you. Yes? Really? Vintage of
17: 1800. No. Oh, I tell way. you, the conditions in the mines are worse than ever before. Really? Another catastrophe last week,
15: the second in a month. What they need is a guild, an organization. More than that, gentlemen, they need a champion,
17: someone with influence to show them the way. Another Zolo, perhaps? Oh, why not Zoli himself? Or is he more interested in the vintage of eighteen hundred nine? Ah, they work out that problem somehow. They have youth. They have
6: courage.
17: Albert, uh, uh, where's that
6: wine?
16: Yes, <laughs> John. At times I have felt that you have been deliberately avoiding me. Avoiding you? That's nonsense Emil. Mm. When old friends do not see each other for almost ten years, that, that's past the stage of nonsense. However, it's good to be together again, just like old times. Your house doesn't look like our old garret. Well, I'm, I'm comfortable, Suzanne, I'm very, very comfortable. Yes, perhaps too much so. Hmm? What is that? Paul,
19: shall we go into the other room? I want to show you the pearls that Emile bought for me when we were in Italy. Ah,
16: yes. Come along, Suzanne. Albert. Yes, monsieur. Make certain that the windows are tightly shut. <laughs> Still afraid of drafts, Emile? Yes, my, my chest, Junior. Ah, your chest is as strong as a barrel and always was. Come, Paul. Yeah. I want to show you something. A priceless bit of wood carving. I'm sorry, Emile, but I must go. What? So soon? Yes. It's goodbye, Emile. Bye. I'm going south. Back to the country. Come, come, Paul. We're old friends. <laughs> Out with it. What, what, what's troubling you, huh? Do you really want me to tell you? Why, of course. Well, we've drifted apart, Emil. Or perhaps I should say, you've outgrown me. Emil. Ah, nonsense. No, no, you know it isn't nonsense. This home. It's carpet. Servants. You're wealthy now. World famous. A member of the Legion of Honor. You've come a long way from the day when we started together in an attic and you shouted, burn the books of the hypocrites. Let their lying pages warm the bones of a man of truth. Hmm. Sometimes I'm tempted to give in and paint only for money. But no, an artist should remain poor, Emile. Otherwise his talent, like his stomach, grows fat and stuffy. Like mine, eh? Mm, I'm sorry, Emil, but I had to say it. You're my oldest and dearest friend. I couldn't go without telling you this. Goodbye, Emil. Paul, oh. will you write? No. But I'll remember.
19: Emil? What's the matter, dear? Tired?
16: No, no, no. Just thinking. Cezanne's gone. Back to Provence.
19: Emile, you didn't quarrel.
16: Quarrel? With (laughs) Cezanne? No, but he's taken something of me with him. The last of my youth. Strange. Cezanne and I... Struggled together, starved together. Now our, our paths have divided. Well, I've fought my battles, and now I won't calm, rest. From now on, I can only look back. Oh,
19: that's just idle talk. Come along. Play me a game of piquette.
16: Yes. Yeah. Eh, life is tricky, and I suppose we don't influence our fate. While we play piquette, a starving mother and child jump into the river Seine. A servant forgets to extinguish a stove, and someone suffocates. Who knows whose fate may mingle with ours, or When.
9: We have just heard the first act of the life of emil zola starring paul muni with josephine hutchinson during our brief intermission we present that lovable family the brownings the family's finished dinner and the girls are just getting up from the table
10: well come on midge let's get the dishes out of the way huh okay dot i'll help clear off the table oh wash your dishes in luxe today it's kind of your hands hooray hooray oh, why that's
6: a cute little song midge where'd you hear it
10: over the dr susan program the other day but that program's in the afternoon midgey You haven't been cutting classes, have you? Of course not, silly. It was while we were washing dishes in our home economics class. We had the radio turned on. Very apropos, I should say. I hope you were using Lux Flakes. Oh, but definitely. Teacher says it's thrifty on account of a little go so far, you know. (laughs) Well, she's right. And it makes dishwashing loads easier. And the way it helps your hands stay nice looking. Any
14: girl likes that. I'll
10: say. You know, two of the girls said their mothers don't buy Lux. (laughs) And they're going to pick at them. We want Lux Harsh soaps are unfair to hands. <laughs> oh, mothers,
8: <isn't>
9: thank you. <laughs> yes,
10: it is, and I'm sure their mothers will be glad to know about Lux. It's such a help, and it's real thrifty too.
9: Those girls are right. Harsh soaps are unfair to hands. They contain harmful alkali that's apt to dry the natural oils in your skin and make your hands rough and red. Lux flakes have no harmful alkali, absolutely nothing to spoil the beauty of hands. So use Lux for your dishes, won't you? To help your hands stay soft and smooth. Remember, a little goes so far, Lux is thrifty. And now, Leslie Howard is ready to raise the curtain on the second act of our play
18: Paul Muni in the Life of Emile Zola with Josephine Hutchinson. And so, while Emile Zola grew paunchy and contented, the stage of France was being set for the greatest crusade of his career. In the office of the Army Intelligence Service, the Minister of War has called a meeting of his staff. Important military information has been disclosed to the German Embassy, and in the minds of the French General Staff is one word.
14: Treason! Treason, I say! This paper is a bordero, a list of our secret army documents. It was found by one of our agents in an office at the German Embassy. Well,
8: that's amazing.
14: Listen, gentlemen, this excerpt. I am sending you notes on the French 120 gun new plan on covering troops. Changes in artillery formations. New shooting manual for field artillery. Very difficult to procure. The man who wrote this is our traitor. Haven't any of you any idea who he is?
7: He must be on the general staff, sir.
14: One of us? Ridiculous. Here's a roster of all our officer students, Colonel Sandhair. Let
7: me have it. The traitor is here, gentlemen, on this list. Ayaris, De Beauville, Darcy. Ridiculous. Durancey, Dambigi, Dreyfus, Esterházy.
20: Esterházy.
14: Well, have you found something?
7: I was wondering about Esterházy. Ferdinand, Count Walsh and Esterházy, he's of Hungarian descent.
14: But his father was a general
5: in the French army. But wait, what about that fellow just above him, Hmm.
7: Dreyfus? Dreyfus? Uh, Here we are. Alfred Dreyfus. Look here, gentlemen. Captain in the 14th Regiment of Artillery. He was born at Mulhouse, Alsace. A religion Jew. Attached Section 2 of the General Staff. Artillery officer. Attached to General. General Staff. Speaks German. Interested in all branches. Well to
14: do. He's the man. That settles it. Take action at once. Yes,
7: sir. Very good, sir. Major Dort? Sir. Summon Bertillon, the handwriting expert from the Bank of France. Get samples of Dreyfus' handwriting. Send the message to Dreyfus to a report here in the morning. Yes, sir.
20: Major Picard to see the chief of staff. Come in, Picard.
15: Well? Captain Dreyfus is waiting in Major Dort's room now, sir. Is he nervous? No, sir. Well, then he's more of a rascal than we think. Oh, one moment, sir, please. Is it possible, sir, that we're making a mistake? The French army, Major Picard... Does not make mistakes. But we know so little about Dreyfus. Exactly. We have no proof. We'll attend to that. You mean we'll manufacture our own? That's enough, Major Picard.
14: Yes, Major Dorn. Sir. You will see Captain Dreyfus at once. You know what to do.
18: Very well, sir.
14: Good morning. Captain Dreyfus? Yes, Major Dorne. I was instructed to report to the Chief of Staff. who is busy just now. Please sit down. Thank you, sir. He might be some time yet. While we're waiting, you can help me out, if you will. Yes, sir. I have an important memorandum to write for the Chief of Staff, and unfortunately, I managed to cut my hand rather badly this morning. Oh, well, let me write it for you, sir. Thanks. I'll dictate. You ready? Yes, sir. Monsieur, it is important that I regain immediate possession of the documents... Got that, Dreyfus? Documents. Which I gave you before going on maneuvers. What was the last word? Maneuvers. Yeah. Consisting of a note on the hydraulic break of the 120 gun. Break of the 120 gun, yes. That's all. What? Let me have that paper. I beg your pardon, Major. Sit where you are. You may come in, gentlemen. Yes, sir. Place this man under Arrest? Arrest? On what charge? Treason. Treason? How can you be so stupid? I've spent my life in the army, sacrificed a prosperous commercial career for it. It's outrageous. I've been instructed to offer you the usual alternative. Here is a service revolver. We'll leave the room. You know what to do with it. Kill myself. And so provide you with a perfect case. I'm not so obliging, nor so stupid. Very well, then. Take him away.
15: Draper found guilty. Traitor protests innocence. Morning bulletin. Army Judas faces degradation.
10: Driper's guilty. There
17: it is. I told you so. A traitor to France.
15: They ought to hang him. Down with Dreyfus Down with Dreyfus Hang the traitor. Hang dra- Down with hang him. Hang That's him. the traitor. Hang him. Hang him. Hang, hang him. him. Hang him. Hang, hang, hang him. him.
16: I just sit here, Anatole. And if my friends want to sit with me, they must bear my misery. <laughs> uh, is there anything quite so uncomfortable as a busted foot bath? Or quite so silly as a cold in the head. <laughs> it starts at one end and retreats from another. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you were saying, Anatole. I was
20: speaking of Dreyfus, Emil.
16: Dreyfus? Dreyfus, Dreyfus, will they ever stop speaking of I mean,
20: it? What a
19: fuss
16: over nothing. How do you feel, <sighs> Emil? Oh, I didn't know you had a guest. Oh, come in, dear. You know Aratole, Franz?
20: Of course,
19: of course.
20: Good morning, Madame Zola. Aratole has been suffering for Dreyfus again. You might have suffered too, Emile, if you'd seen him yesterday as I did. Publicly stripped of his rank. Sentenced for life to a dripping cell on Devil's Island. Saying to the end, I'm innocent. Long live France. Over and over, he said it. Why, they struck him, spat on him, reviled him. All else he needed was a crown of thorns.
16: Oh, 30 pieces of silver. After all, the man is a traitor.
20: Perhaps, Emile, but still he's human, not a dog. And that crowd, their faces... Like rabid beasts. Yeah, yeah, Well,
16: human and animal skins are very much the same thickness. We can't expect too much. Oh, my head, my head. How it rewards me, this ungrateful monstrosity that I've combed and fed for 50 years.
19: Some more hot water in uh, you. <laughs>
8: oh. Oh.
19: You're killing me. Stop your nonsense, Amy. It isn't hurting you at all, big baby.
16: Oh, that Alexandre. A fine woman, but no heart, no feelings. Wives are all alike.
5: In other words, Major Picard, you mean to tell me you ferreted out another
15: criminal? Not another criminal, sir, the criminal. I've come to you first, sir, as Chief of Staff. Major Picard, the Dreyfus case is closed. But I've never been fully convinced of Dreyfus' guilt, sir. I've tried for three years to find out the truth. Well? I examined the Dreyfus evidence and discovered that he was convicted not on the Border O, but on a secret document, secretly introduced, which Dreyfus and his counsel were not allowed to see and were not even told about. This made me doubly sure that someone had sacrificed Dreyfus to cover himself. So I determined to ferret out the real traitor, and I've got him. Who is it? Major Count Bolson Esterhazy. Look, but I. One of my agents got hold of a special delivery message from the German military attache addressed to Esterhazy. I compared the letter of Esterhazy's with the writing on the border, Owen. Well, look for yourself. Both writings are Esterhazy's. I tell you, sir. And I tell you, sir, that you've exceeded your duty. Exceeded my. Your duty toward the army. But, General, this is my duty. There must not be another treason trial in the army. Understand? It must not be. But what about Dreyfus rotting on Devil's Island? You can't close the tomb over a living man, can't we? If you say nothing, no one will ever know. And you will say nothing. Understand? That's an official order. You may go. Yes, sir. Very good, sir. Pardon, monsieur.
17: Hmm? That's you,
15: Zola. What?
9: I'm sorry, Uh, monsieur, but there's a... How many
17: times
16: must I tell you I must not be disturbed after dinner? I was just
17: dozing. But there's a lady to see you, monsieur. A lady? Uh, Madame Lucille Dreyfus, monsieur. Dreyfus? Tell her I'm not at home. Uh, She's just outside the door, sir. What? You blackhead. Why didn't you come and tell me? But, monsieur, I thought you... Tell her to come in. Yes, monsieur. Madame Dreyfus.
16: Uh, come in, Madame Dreyfus.
10: Monsieur Zola, please forgive me for intruding like this, but I, I had to see you, talk to you about my husband. But,
16: Madame, what, what can I do for your husband?
10: He is innocent, Monsieur Zola. I have absolute proof, but no one will listen. No one. Oh, please, please, Monsieur. You're the only man in all France who can make them listen. All your life, you've stood for truth That's and justice.
16: Madame, I'm hardly the one to help you. I, I, I'm just an ordinary citizen. I, I have my work, my, my books to write. I, uh, what is this new proof you say you have?
10: A certain Colonel Picard has Oh, do-
16: that. It was in all the papers. Picard came back from Africa and accused Estahazy of writing the Bordeaux. But Estahazy was acquitted, madame.
10: yes. Acquitted by the same army group that convicted my husband. Well, they'll stop at nothing to protect themselves. They're even ready to sacrifice one of their own class. Monsieur, Colonel Picard was arrested and imprisoned in Mount Valeria early this
16: evening. They've arrested Picard?
10: Yes. I have all the facts, Monsieur Zola. Look, look, Monsieur. Here, these are copies of letters written to Colonel Picard by the Assistant Chief of Staff proving beyond doubt that the general staff knows that my husband is innocent and Esterhazy is guilty.
16: They knew and ordered Picard to suppress the truth?
10: Why, that's monstrous. Oh, Monsieur Zola, you will help me, won't you?
16: How can anyone help you? All France believes your husband guilty, hates him as a traitor. Don't you see, they would hurl down and destroy any man who would dare champion him.
10: But surely there must be some way to right this terrible wrong. There's nothing, nothing
16: that can be done. Nothing, unless some fool would uh, uh, publicly accuse the general staff and get himself dragged into court on a charge of criminal libel. Then yes, yes, Monsieur. Madame, you, you, you wouldn't honestly expect me. Why, I, uh, I have my family to consider. I've, I've lived my life. I've, I've, I've I've had enough of fighting and turmoil. I'm I'm happy here and contented.
10: Why should I? I'm sorry, Monsieur Zola. It
16: was
10: only my. I despair that brought me. You see, I was thinking of my family too, of my children, who ask me every day where he is, when he's coming back. My husband, condemned to suffer a living death.
16: I, I'm sorry. Good night, Monsieur. Madame, Madame Dreyfus, you've you you you've left your paper. Albert! Albert! Monsieur. Albert, follow Madame Dreyfus. Tell her she's left her portfolio
5: of these papers, these letters. Emile. Emile. Uh, uh, Burn the
7: books of the hypocrites.
13: Let them warm the bones of a
17: man of truth. Well, monsieur? A man of truth. His stomach grows fat and stuffy. Uh, monsieur Zola.
16: Man of truth. Hmm? Hmm? Well? Well, Albert, what, what are you standing there? For? But the papers, Michelle. Oh, no, no, I... no, no. Just leave them. Leave them. Get up. Get up. I have work to do.
19: Emile? Emile, dear.
16: Just one moment. One moment. One moment, dear. Ah. Uh, there. Working so late, dear.
19: I haven't seen you work like this for years.
16: Cezanne was right, Alexandrine. I was growing fat and stuffy. But that's over now. But what is it? Alexandrine, I've just written a letter to the president of France. Listen. Mr. President of the Republic, a court-martial has recently, by order, dared to acquit one Esther Hazy. A supreme slap at all truth, all justice. The minister of war, the chief of the general staff, and the assistant chief never doubted that the famous Bordereau was written by Esther Haase. For over a year, they have known that Dreyfus is innocent. Yet, they have kept this knowledge to themselves. And those men sleep, and they have wives and children they love. One talks of the honor of the army. The army is the people of France themselves. And the Dreyfus affair is a matter pertaining to that army. I affirm with intense conviction, the truth is on the march and nothing will stop her. I accuse the minister of war of having concealed decisive proofs of the innocence of Dreyfus. I accuse the chief of staff of being an accomplice to the same crime. I accuse the handwriting experts of having made lying and fraudulent reports, and finally, I accuse the War Office of having vilely led a campaign to misdirect public opinion and cover up its own sin. In making these accusations, I am aware that I render myself open to prosecution for libel, but that does not matter. Let there be a trial in the full light of day. I am waiting.
17: Accused by Emil Zola. I accused. What tripe is that to publish?
19: Who is he to accuse anyone of anything?
15: A
17: fine state the country's in
15: when a fellow like that dares to tell us our army's rotten. I never heard of a rich writer. How would he get his money then from Germany? Where else? And let me tell you another thing. Look, there he is now, Zola, across the street. Hey, there's Zola. Come on, let's get him. Kill the writer. Throw him in the Kill him. let's get him. Let's get him. 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 Emil, what's
19: happened?
16: The crowd they're after me
19: is it because of
16: yes my letter to the president
19: you must stay indoors you mustn't leave oh they're throwing things at the house
16: yes listen listen to them they hate me alexandrine they've burnt me in effigy. they've thrown stones at me at me alexandrine the people of france at me the one who's fought for them all his life But it will do them no good, Alexandrine. The truth is on the march, and nothing will stop it.
9: We pause for station identification. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The curtain falls on act two of The Life of Emil Zola... ...starring Paul Muni with Josephine Hutchinson. Before going on with act three... ...we present our guest of the evening. But first, here are eight little words I wish you'd remember. A little goes so far... ...lux is thrifty. Remember that, won't you? Just a few flakes make such a lot of suds... ...lux is the thrifty care for stockings... ...underthings, blouses, sweaters and dresses. For everything safe in water alone. And for extra economy... Be sure to buy the generous, large-size box of Lux Flakes. Here's Leslie Howard now with our guest of honor.
18: Physically, he's a big man, is William Dieterle, and cinematically, you can measure his stature by those fine pictures: The Life of Emile Zola, the, the story of Louis Pasteur, and his latest handiwork, Juarez. All three films have three things in common: each is a product of Warner Brothers, each starred Paul Muni, and each was directed by the ex-actor. William Dieterle. One doesn't have to think very hard, Mr. Dieterle, to recognize that you have a decided taste for historical biographies.
21: Well, Mr. Howard, if nothing else, they proved one intensely satisfying point, that the intelligence of picture audiences is considerably higher than many producers seem ready to admit. You proved the same point in Pygmalion, when, among other things, you were brave enough to keep the title of the play intact and not change Pygmalion to something like "The Passionate Professor" or "London Love," or... <laughs> perhaps. But quite a few people, I understand, fully expected Pygmalion
18: to be an animal picture. <laughs> you know, really, I, I've even heard it called—I've
21: even heard it called Pygmalion. <laughs> Incidentally, your co-direction of Pygmalion was great. I know of no one who could have done better as a director and actor. Thank you very much. Now, now, here's something that should be right down detail lane.
18: Ever since history came to the screen, critics have accused Hollywood of twisting history around for its own purposes. Now, tell me, A, is that true, and B,
21: if so, what about it? It's partly true, of course, and here, at least, is my answer. It's a director's job to sell to an audience a definite idea, an idea whose course should be as direct and steady as an error toward a target. When factual accuracy is unessential to the general honesty of the theme, I think he makes a mistake by tipping his hat too frequently to the history book. The events of his drama must be told in an understandable, logical manner. And that, I think, justifies the minor rearrangements we have to make from time to time. Yes, I imagine that could easily work both ways, that, that at times it's a great temptation to forget the picture in, in favor of history. Especially when you are dealing with as great and character characters Mr. Muni portrays tonight, Emil Zola. His books brought him a huge fortune. But as a youth, he was so poor he had to stay in bed because he hadn't the money for fuel. He once flunked literature in school and became the most famous author of his time. He created 1,200 characters, but is best known perhaps for his electrifying letter, I accuse. If this play you are doing so admirably tonight has a message to convey, it is that there are millions of people in the world today like Dreyfus and there is not always a Zola. Yet, this is no reason to despair, for at any time, through any chance, a Zola might come along. Let's hope so.
18: Thank you, William Dieterle, for making pictures that are more than entertainment. Now we come to act three of the life of Emil Zola, starring Paul Muni with Josephine Hutchinson. Defiantly, Emile Zola pursued his course. An open attack on the high command of the French army. An attack which was to lead directly to a court of justice and a trial for criminal libel. But Zola's primary aim was thwarted. Stubbornly, the court refused to allow any mention of the Dreyfus case. The Dreyfus case is closed. Witnesses favorable to Zola were silenced. The witness will step down. His opponents favored. Continue, General. The crowd encouraged to jeer at the man of truth. Ah! Until the whole trial assumed a nightmare aspect, reeling madly toward one objective Convict Emil Zola! Now Zola himself is on the stand. Calmly, he faces the jury.
16: Gentlemen, my profession is writing, not talking. But from my struggling youth until today, my principal aim has been to strive for truth. That is why I I entered this fight. It has been said that the state summoned me to this court. That is not true. I'm here because I wished it. I alone... I've chosen you as my judge. I alone decided that this abominable affair should see the light so that France might at last know all and voice her opinion. Gentlemen, I know you. You are the heart, the intellect of my beloved Paris, where I was born and which I've studied for 40 years. I see you with your families under the evening lamp. I accompany you into your factories, your shops. You're all workers and righteous men. You will not say like many, what does it matter if an innocent man is undergoing torture on Devil's Island? Is the suffering of one obscure person worth the disturbance of a great country? Gentlemen, I know that tremendous pressure has been put upon you. Save the army. Convict Zola and save France. I say to you, pick up that challenge. Save the army and save France. But do it by letting truth conquer. Not only is an innocent man crying out for vindication, but more, much more, a great nation is in desperate danger of forfeiting her honor. Do not take upon yourselves a fault, the burden of which you will forever bear in history. At this solemn moment, before you gentlemen of the jury, before France, before the whole world, I swear that Dreyfus is innocent. By my 40 years of work, by all that I have written... By all that I have won, by all that I have done to spread the spirit of France, I swear that Dreyfus is innocent. May all that melt away. May my name perish if Dreyfus be not innocent. He is innocent.
7: Jury will retire to form its verdict. And Emil Zola, having been found guilty of criminal libel, is hereby sentenced to one year's imprisonment and 3,000 francs fine. It's the only thing, Emil. You must
16: leave
17: France immediately. Leave France? Clemenceau, my friend. Are you mad? You're still free, Emile. Go into hiding. England. Any place where they can't get
16: at you. Run away like a common criminal? I would be denounced by my friends as well as my enemies.
17: It's true. In prison, you would be a martyr, a symbol for the whole world to overwhelm with its sympathy. But help us to do anything. In London, you're all powerful. You can still fight for drivers. Write smashing articles, pamphlets. Keep pricking at the conscience of the world. Emile. There are times when it's more courageous to be cowardly.
16: Alexandrine, pack me a few warm things. Must be cold in London.
17: You see, he's run away. Turn tail like a coward and run to England. There's more to it than that. Have you seen the posters all over Paris? Look,
10: look here. The truth is still on the march. Reads all our startling
8: article
15: From England. So that's why he went. Good
16: morning, Mr. Zola. Oh, it's you, eh? Good morning.
6: Is your cold better, sir? Worse,
16: worse, much worse. What if he of your old scamp of a father? Is he ever going to get back from the village with my newspapers? He means.
6: He's here now, Mr. Zola.
15: Emile, look, this, look. What, what is this, my paper, the papers? It's happened, Emile, it's happened. Listen to this. Colonel Henry's suicide after Dreyfus' confession.
6: Confession? Henry, he
15: was the man who framed the evidence against Dreyfus. Uh, let me see, let me see, let and see. And this one here. French chief of staff resigns. Zola's fight for truth, vindicated at last. Esther Harsey in flight. He's running away. And Dreyfus, Dreyfus, what, what's happened to Dreyfus? Look, Dreyfus' case revision inevitable. Emile, do you hear? You can go home now. Dreyfus will be freed.
16: Home. Paris. You see, Bridget, the truth is still on the march. And nothing will stop her. This next will be my greatest book, Alexandria. My very greatest. I'm going to call it Justice. Please, dear.
19: It's past midnight. You've done nothing but drive yourself ever since you came home. Mm. And you must come to bed.
16: Mm, yes, yes. Present, presently, Matthew, presently. Oh, yes. there's so much to do and so little time to do it. I see it all so clearly now. The future of France and the world. The cause and the effect. The roots and the tree. Huh? That's good. The roots and the tree. I must write that down. Uh, the cause mm-hmm. and the. I
19: can't understand this frantic hurry.
16: Mm-hmm. There's
19: always tomorrow.
16: Always? I wonder. I wonder if, in the middle of my greatest work, there will always be a tomorrow.
19: Please, you're tired. You must get some rest. You've got to be up early for the Dreyfus ceremony.
16: Mm. (laughs) Yes, Dreyfus. Tomorrow he will be restored to the army. You know, it's a queer thing, this, this old Dreyfus business. Before it, I thought my work was done. Then suddenly came this Dreyfus explosion and I'm alive again. My head bursting with ideas. This new book, it's bigger than anything I've ever dared before. The world about to hurl itself to destruction. The will of nations for Peace powerful break. stopping it on the brink.
19: Emil.
16: You don't believe it? Wait. Listen. To save Dreyfus, we had to challenge the might of those who dominate the world. It's not the swaggering militarists there, but puppets that dance as the strings are pulled. It's those others. Those who would ruthlessly plunge us into the bloody abyss of war to protect their power and their gold. Think of it, Alexandrine. Thousands of children sleeping peacefully tonight under the roofs of Paris, London, Berlin, all the world, doomed to die horribly on some titanic battlefield. Unless it can be prevented. And it can be prevented! It must!
8: Hmm?
16: Now, there's something else I wanted to write here. Let's see. Uh... Good
19: night, Emil.
16: hmm Yes, good night, my night. Good night, my dear. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you doing? No, 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 no. Cl- close the window, please. But, Emil... Please close it. I'll catch my death of cold. And, and stir up the fire on the stove. Emil,
19: it's dangerous to leave the window closed with a
16: fire burning. Oh, no, 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 no nonsense, nonsense. Just uh, stir up the fire. Uh, I no uh, Where was I? Huh? Mm-hmm. Can be prevented. It must the world the world must be conquered not by the force of arms but by ideas (coughs) ideas that liberate then we can build a new built for the humble and the wretched. (coughs) I hope, I sincerely hope I shall live to see the rising of a new
17: At his desk. Carbon monoxide poisoning. A great man. A great man.
19: France will remember Emile Zola.
17: All the world will remember Emile Zola. What is
12: it, Mama? What is everybody waiting for? Hush, darling.
6: A great man has died, my dear.
20: He's going soul. to his
6: rest in the
20: Pantheon. He knew that there is no Save the serenity. great men of our country. And at old France, he's delivering Your the oration. Save in truth. So let us not mourn him. Let us rather salute that bright spirit of his which will live forever and like a torch enlighten a younger generation inspired to follow him. Take to your hearts the words of Zola. Enjoying today's freedom, do not forget those who fought the battles for you and bought your liberty with their genius and their blood. Do not forget them, nor applaud the lies of fanatical intolerance. Be human, for no man in all the breadth of our land more fervently loved humanity than Zola. Let us not pity him because he suffered and endured. Let us envy him let us envy him because of his great heart which won him the proudest of destinies. He was a moment of the conscience of man.
2: Fabulous, and that was The Life of Emile Zola. Muni won the Oscar for his portrayal of Louis Pasteur. For my money, he should have won for Emile Zola, too. If you haven't seen the actual movie, you need to do so as soon as possible. He is incredible in it. Right, just time to find out who the hell those Hollywood legends were. Say it's a nice day. It's a nice day.
6: It's Jane Wyatt. <laughs> <laughs> Jane and
2: Robert Young. Yes, it was Robert Young and Jane Wyatt, the stars of Father Knows Best, of course. If you got them, then you deserve all the classic movie credentials in the world. Before I go, just a quick reminder to enter the competition. Name that star and win a treasure trove of Ann Dvorak memorabilia, courtesy of Christina Rice. The link is in the show notes. And if you want to join us every Sunday throughout December for Christmas film club nights, make sure you sign up at patreon.com slash attaboysecrets or click the link in the show notes of this episode. That is all from me this time. Thank you for joining me. Until next time, take wonderful care of yourselves. And those you love. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month. And in return, you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you.
6: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as
10: important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US vs. China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous
8: US-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.